Hi, and welcome to another episode of SwitchCast, a podcast delving into the world of film, brought to you by the team at Switch. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Charlie David Page. I'm Jess Fenton. I'm Daniel Lamon. And I'm Brent Davidson. It's Thursday, the 27th of July, 2017. On this week's show, could Netflix be the end of cinema? We take on the debate around Netflix and how their feature film production could affect whether we'll keep seeing new films theatrically. And the boys and I break down everything that happened at this year's San Diego Comic-Con. And, as always, all our reviews and giveaways. Let's get straight into it with War for the Planet of the Apes, the third instalment in the new chapter of the franchise. Daniel got primal and tackled this film, so did you go ape for it? Well, it's not quite that kind of film. The third in the new chapter of the Apes franchise and the eighth film overall, we're not counting the remake, War for the Planet of the Apes finds the tribe of ape leader Caesar, once again played by Andy Serkis, pushed to breaking point, when the remaining human forces push even harder to wipe them out. Faced with the enormous inhumanity of man, Caesar must decide whether to hold onto his own or respond without mercy. I showed you mercy. You talk about mercy? No matter what you say, eventually you'd replace us. That's the law of nature. So what would you have done? Bleak, unforgiving, and unrelenting, War takes the series further into darkness, using its science fiction concept as an allegory for the world we live in now. It's hard not to see it as a damning of Trump's America, with the apes faced with vile patriotic radicalism and xenophobia, acts of physical and emotional torture, and an opponent determined to dominate and destroy them at all costs. It's a tough film, the toughest blockbuster in a long time, but it's an enormously impressive, beautifully crafted one, once again proving these new Apes films as possibly the strongest franchise in our cinemas today. It's a little long and often brutal, but its heart, humanity and integrity make it an intelligent blockbuster well worth the journey, and one that fans of the 1968 original, myself included, will embrace with open arms. I'm giving it four stars. I love this franchise and I didn't think it could get any better and then they added Woody Harrelson to it and I'm beside myself. So, but what gets me the most about these films, um, who saw them coming? Like, they're so huge. They are so well done and if I have to go one more year without Andy Serkis being recognised as possibly one of the greatest and most innovative actors on the planet, I'm going to go ape shit. It actually took me, it took me a long time to get around to seeing um, Rise, the first film in this new section of the franchise um, mostly because I have worshipped the original Planet of the Apes for most of my film going life it's one of my favourite films and I just couldn't conceive of the possibility that revisiting that world would work mostly because the strangest thing about the Planet of the Apes franchise is that up until Rise of the Planet of the Apes the only good Planet of the Apes film was the original. All of the original sequels were, were lackluster in some respect. Some were interesting, like Escape and Conquest had kind of, there were interesting things about them. But some of them were just dire. And then, of course, there was the remake, which no one ever wants to talk about. There's so a when remake? I, uh. Yeah, Tim Burton. Ma- <laughs> no, you don't know about the Tim Burton I, remake? No, I'm just, pret- I'm, I'm on oh, your page. I'm pretending it doesn't Conveniently exist. forgetting it exists. That's yeah, like the, like the fourth Indiana Jones or uh, the fourth and fifth part of the Caribbean movie they don't exist or all of or all of the Saw films apart from the first one um (laughs) but I was I was really surprised at how clean and clever that Rise was Mm -hmm. and how much it was honoring the legacy of the original film but trying as much as possible to kind kind of carve its own direction and acknowledge the social commentary that was the backbone of the original Planet of the Apes but then Dawn just sent it through the roof so particularly off the back of this film it's been called one of the most impressive 
Hollywood franchises of late. And I don't think that's an exaggeration at all. It's funny to see a, a Hollywood franchise that refuses to compromise, that refuses to compromise on its integrity, on what it has to say, um, and its artistry. Like, yeah, we've seen Andy Serkis play a monkey quite a few times now, just in this film, but also in King Kong. And it it's still endlessly thrilling to watch because it is, like, like you said, he's one of the most innovative and exciting actors in working because we keep seeing within his performances in motion capture a development of the idea of what those kind of performances can be and that extends into the rest of the cast in all of the recent apes films where all of their performances as the apes are very impressive Mm. what gets me is that is that it's they're so original and they're so great but they've actually just sort of um conformed to the norm these days which is simply an origin film we have the story we have the premise we have this idea of a of a planet of apes um and they just went back to the beginning how how did we get there? Which is, you know, the same with all comic book movies and everything else these days. Particularly when you know at the end point is Charlton Heston sitting on a beach looking up at the decimated Statue of Liberty going, you maniacs, you blew it up, damn yeah. you all to hell. You know that's the end point. So yeah. the interesting thing about the fact we know that is, yeah, how did we get there? Because we know that whatever happens is going to be. It was why when they announced this one was called War for the Planet of the Apes, went, of course it is. Because that's the only logical continuation for where this had to go. Because this story is, or if not more, interesting Mm. than the end of the journey, which is obviously, Yeah. yeah. And Matt Reeves is just an exceptional director. Like, he... Cloverfield was a masterful debut for him. And then Let Me In, no one would have... Another another film that no one would have seen coming to be as great as it was, the remake of Let the Right One In, which was so beautiful and so devastating. Um, I'm now more interested in whatever this new Batman film is that DC are cooking up, mostly because Matt Reeves is directing it. Uh, mm. And I think Dawn and War have really shown what an incredibly talented an uncompromisingly bold director Matt Reeves is. Yeah. So War for the Planet of the Apes is in cinemas now, thank God, and you can find my full review at maketheswitch.com.au. Also in cinemas today is A Monster Calls, the film adaptation of the children's novel by Patrick Ness, who also penned the screenplay. Brent was brave enough to face the monster, but did you get away unscathed? Oh, unfortunately not, Charlie, and I doubt anyone really will. Conor O'Malley is visited in the middle of the night by a giant tree monster that promises to tell him three true stories, after which Conor must tell him a true story in return. Okay, now it's time to grab your tissues. This is not as whimsical as it sounds, as through the stories, Connor comes to understand, and I quote, Although he does not want his mother to die, it is something he must accept, and something he must not feel guilty for wanting to be over, so he does not have to feel pain anymore. Yes, you heard correctly, it is a children's film about accepting the inevitable death of a parent. It's okay that you're angry. I'm angry too. And if you need to break things... If it sounds like it's a heavy hitter, that's not even half of it. The stories themselves use beautiful animations and the movie, although having a giant monster, is completely understated. I mean, if you can see anything through the tears. Felicity Jones, Sigourney Weaver and Liam Neeson, who voices the monster, head this sensational cast, but it's Lewis McDougall as Connor O'Malley who stands out delivering a haunting and honest performance you would expect and sometimes not even see from an actor many years his senior. 
Pack your tissues, but definitely go see A Monster Calls. I'm giving it four stars. It's really not very often we see something that is as beautiful, but also as devastating as A Monster Calls. Um, this film really grabbed me for its storytelling method, which is so unique, and yet at the same time, it picks you up and throws you down. By the end of the film, you're there alongside uh, Connor. You are totally there in his shoes, and uh, I don't think I've been this heartbroken by a film in a very, very long time. Oh my god, it's devastating. I mm. I made a big mistake watching this. I watched this movie on a plane, um, coming back from Europe, because I thought it was going to be like a whimsical story about a boy and like his new monster friend, and they go on and... How wrong you were. Oh my god, why did you not know this? Because I barely watched the trailer. I was just like, oh yeah, that's that movie that I'd like to see. So I'd had maybe like three gins and a small bottle of wine on this plane, and when they came around to collect, like, the rubbish, I'm there just, like, openly weeping, with, like, sobbing. I had to go and compose myself in the toilets. That's how intense it was. Also, because one, one of my close friends, his mother also died of cancer. And, I, like, the first thing I thought of when I got off the plane was messaging him being like, never see this movie because it will trigger everything for you. I, it, it's just... Oh my god, you walk out of it feeling... Well, not that I walked anywhere, but, you know, you finish it feeling empty and exhausted because you've just, you know, not only been struggling not to cry for an hour and a half, but then crying your guts out. I cannot fucking wait to see this film. I cannot wait. That makes me so excited. I'm so excited to see this. In these movies, why why is it always the mum that dies? Why? You know who's guilty about this most is Disney. Why is it always the fucking mum? Because the mum is the caring one. In this movie, the dad is a total shitbag who moved to America. Okay, cool. So fuck him. Oh, speaking of Americans, were part of your tears induced by Sigourney Weaver's terrible British accent? No, she's all right. She's actually quite good. Yeah, she's quite good. I've only seen a small clip and it kind of made me cringe. And I'm like, oh, I don't know. Let's just take it back a couple of steps. Because I saw this movie on a plane maybe three months ago. And at the time, I didn't realise that it hadn't been released in Australia, and it's only come out today. I thought it used to take a lot longer for films to get put on a plane, but seemingly Australia just has this extremely delayed release date. It's been a problem a lot this year with a lot of films getting a much... Like, I think John Wick Chapter 2 was also one that suffered from a delayed... 20th Century Women was a delayed release date, and nothing compared to this. This was an Oscar contender last year. I think this was out in the States. End of last year. Yeah, end of last year. Um, and I, for one, I've been dying to see this film because I am a big fan of the director, um, J.A. Bayona, who create, who directed The Orphanage and directed The Impossible. He's done some beautiful, beautiful films. And so I thought this was a shoe in particularly because now he's directing the next Jurassic World film. But I, I honestly cannot understand why it's taken so long. I guess maybe distributors don't think Australian audiences are ready for a children's film about a devastating subject. I think it's a, it's a hard one to sell. That's the problem. I mean, when you watch it and experience it, it's amazing. But as a distributor, how do you go about trying to convince people to come and see a film like this? That's the difficulty, I think. But in the same regard, they shouldn't be afraid to be putting this film out there. This is an amazing film and people will come and see it from what they've heard. I, I remember having this weird experience when I was a teenager and I went back and watched a lot of the films that I watched when I was growing up and I realised that a lot of them had been edited. Like, they'd had bits cut. Like, even Disney films that had bits cut out of them. You had films like The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Even Anastasia, that the, the, um, the 20th Century Fox film, was like 
was edited out. I think maybe it's also a certain degree which what Australian distributors expect parents want their children to see, which is, you know, they don't want to make them feel bad. And I mean, there are a lot of very devastating children's films out there that are dealing with adult themes that oftentimes are able to kind of impart enormous lessons to children. Well, that's the thing. Children's films have license to explore complex issues, uh, you know, mm. inside out about how your emotions get more complex as you get older was one of them. The Lion King was Hamlet. Lion King was Hamlet. Um, Not a very good adaptation of Hamlet, but yes. It was- even there was that bit in Toy Story 3 where they all accept death and hold each other's hands. The Land Before Time is an, is an hour-long film about watching a child deal with the death of its parent and go through the the stages of grieving until it's able to get up at its own it's tiny cartoon dinosaurs but it's quite harrowing to watch i'm just gonna put this out there i tend to have more emotional reactions to these kind of children's films than i do in like what would be considered a more adult film I, i i maybe it's because there's an innocence there i can't quite i don't i don't know but do, do you guys end up getting more i don't know weepy during these yeah. oh yeah I'm, i have a list of films that are like a no watch films that i can't watch because i know they're going to make me break down sobbing and most of them are kids films i have never laughed or cried harder than i have with toy story 3 yeah before and i too have watched that on a plane after seeing it for the first time in a cinema, so I knew what was coming, and I was still yeah. a freaking mess. Also, planes make everything sadder. <laughs> the screens are so small. No, it's it's a scientific fact, um, because you're in like a weird transit zone psychologically, because you're not anywhere, and you feel like you can lower your inhibitions. So basically, everything you watch will have a stronger emotional reaction. So that's why so many bad films end up in in-flight entertainment. That explains so much. Maybe. <laughs> I think the other reason why children's films have a tendency to hit us a lot harder is because emotions in them have to be honest because the level of experience and the way that children view the world is a lot simpler and a lot more straightforward than it is the way that we do. So their response is a lot more straightforward, which to us is a sign of innocence and it's more devastating because you're watching them have to kind of deal with these problems. They're having to comprehend ideas of death or loss or being abandoned, you know, because their responses are so honest, it takes us aback because as adults, we don't want to have those honest responses. Yeah, because I never remembered when I was a child thinking that anything was particularly sad and then rewatching it as an adult, I'm like, yeah, oh no, I'm going to cry now. This is great. I know adults that have gone to try and watch The Land Before Time and I've said to them, you're, this is going to be hard. Like, they're like, oh, it's about cartoon dinosaurs. It's going to be hard. I'm like, no, you're going to find this one really, this is going to hit you. And I've had so many friends contact me after the watch going, I'm a sobbing mess. I, I don't know how to deal with this. Because, you know, mm. it's watching a child deal with the loss of a parent. And in that particular instance, a child then be abandoned and have nowhere to go. I think it's important that children's films do this. I hate the fact that children's films are now dumbed down. When you have a film come along like Inside Out or from the sounds of it like A Monster Calls, I think it's something to be celebrated. The, the, the concept of what like J.K. Rowling was trying to do with Harry Potter of saying introduce concepts to the world that children will need to understand later but this is the time where they can actually comprehend them and as much as they're difficult for us to deal with their minds are in the process where this might help them to comprehend a parent's death or a sibling's death or a family member's death or a friend's death uh it's giving them a framework in order to understand the world because they can go i equate this with an experience i had watching this film And all I would recommend is not drinking three gins and then watching it on a plane. (laughs) Sound advice, Brent, sound advice. I can say the same for vodka. (laughs) You can watch A Monster Calls in cinemas now and don't miss my full review at maketheswitch.com.au. 
You can also catch a ghost story in cinemas from today. It's received positive responses since its Sundance world premiere earlier this year. Daniel experienced this supernatural drama, so did the film leave you haunted? No, but I don't think that would actually be its intention. Rather than a horror film as its title would traditionally suggest, David Lowry's A Ghost Story is more of a fable on life, death and love, where a white-sheeted ghost of a recently deceased man, played by Casey Affleck, returns to the home he shared with his now-widowed wife, played by Rooney Mara. We build our legacy piece by piece. And maybe the whole world will remember you, or maybe just a couple of people, but you do what you can to make sure you're still around after you're gone. The film stumbles in its first act, but once it finds its feet, it becomes a fascinating, often moving meditation on life after death and the legacy we leave behind. Neither Affleck nor Mara are particularly noteworthy, but what impresses most about a ghost story is the strength of David Lowry's vision. The images are breathtaking and leave a lasting impression, and as the film progresses, it goes from an intimate tiny drama to something ambitious and cosmic. Even with its occasional hiccups, I found myself very taken by a ghost story. I'm giving it three and a half stars. Okay, Daniel, I have a question for you, and it's been bugging me since I saw the trailer for this so long ago. Yes. Casey Affleck is under a white sheet for presumably the majority of the film, yes? Yes, this is correct. Okay, so... Could that have been played by anyone or is it or is Casey Affleck's Casey Affleckness actually shining through? I was wondering this watching the film. Um, I'm not a particularly big fan of Casey Affleck, so I was pretty pleased to see him under a sheet. But um, <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> I, I I kind of feel like as much as not to take away from his talent, which he has some. I kind of feel like this part could have been played by anybody and it doesn't necessarily mean that he had to be there because so much about the power of the of that character is the image of the character. Mm-hmm. I mean, c- because it looks so innocent. It's the way that the ghost is represented in the film is quite literally a, a white sheet with two holes in it. So it's what a kid's vision of what a ghost would be. But because of that, that instantly makes it clear that this isn't a horror film, that it's a film that's supposed to be, you're supposed to um, have a certain degree of empathy for this character because it looks so innocent. Yeah. And then because of that, Lowry then explores the placement of that image. I mean, it's one of those films where you could pretty much pause it at any point and you could put that frame on a wall. The images are so beautiful. But while that's often quite frustrating, I find that quite frustrating in some films where I go, you're just pretty for the sake of being pretty. Just like me. This one has such a sadness to it that I was, yeah, really taken by. But I don't necessarily think that Affleck's presence in the film under the sheet, that he's particularly integral to it. I think it's the singularity of Lowry's vision that's important in this one. Maybe the sheet is a metaphor and you could be the ghost and I could be the ghost. I think that's kind of the point. The ghost is the portal. It's the device which lets us see all these particular scenarios that that it experiences, these these different points in time. Yeah, and uh, that's actually the thing that's the most surprising about it is the way that it plays with the concept of time. This is a ghost who has unfinished business, who chooses to stay as opposed to moving on. And so he chooses to exist within the space of this house and the world continues around him. And that idea of if there's no such thing as an end of time for you, if death is no longer a factor, the way that time manipulates itself around you uh, and your relationship with that. uh, There's a really beautiful moment where another ghost appears in the film and the relate the momentary relationship these two ghosts have with each other says volumes about this experience of life after death and not moving on and not knowing what to do with yourself 
it's 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 one of those films I don't want to say too much because there are so many wonderful surprises in it. Uh, the first act is difficult mm. because Rooney Mara and Casey Affleck don't quite really hit it as well as I thought they would. But once it's in Lowry's hands, it really sings. It's a very, it's quite a beautiful film. Well, like you, I'm not a big fan of Affleck. Uh, definitely not from his Manchester role, but I am actually really excited to see this. I'm, I've been looking forward to it for a long you time. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I, I think it's going to be something special. It's not a film that you go and see and enjoy, uh, but I think it's a film you experience. Yeah. It's definitely, yeah, it's definitely an experience of a film. And you can read my full review for the film, A Ghost Story, at maketheswitch.com.au and you can catch it in cinemas now. Next up is Kiki, Love to Love, a Spanish romantic comedy. Jess took this one in, so did you feel the passion? If I did, I'm afraid it would reveal a lot more about myself than I'm prepared for right now, Charlie. Uh, Anywho, Kiki, Love to Love is set in Madrid and follows several couples as they navigate their relationships around the revelation or adoption of one member's fetish. If you're thinking this sounds familiar, it's because you're right. Kiki, Love to Love is in fact the Spanish remake of the 2014 Australian film The Little Death. Original writer, director and star Josh Lawson has himself an executive producer role in this remake. Unfortunately, the Spanish appeal here seems to lie solely in the kink and not the characters or story behind them. They've taken everything good about The Little Death and left everything that was great about it. I was obsessed with The Little Death when it came out. It was so fresh, romantic, funny and clever as hell. What tied the stories together was so unique and not all the endings were postcards but oddly fitting and bittersweet. Kiki is just a mess of confused weirdos and liars that somehow managed to find their happy endings. Knowing what this film could have been makes it that much more disappointing. I'm sadly only giving this one two stars. It's weird to hear of the idea of a Spanish remake of an Australian mm. film. Yeah, it's a new one. I mean, we're so used to the idea of our television being remade, like The Slap and Kath and Kim, or even like Animal Kingdom's adaptation into television, but that's an, like an American remake. Like, do you know where how it came about? Was it a big film in Spain? It's Because I don't confusing. even think The Little Death was a particularly big film here. Like, it didn't make much of an impact. Which is no. tragic if it wasn't, because uh, it was so fantastic. But um, I don't know. I just, I'm guessing it's about sex, ultimately, and fetishes and things like that. So I'm guessing the Europeans, the Spanish, they're very passionate people. They're very open. And something about this idea appealed to them. They don't take... Every story from the original, they handpick some and they've created um, their own for for a few others. But it just, I don't know, it's kind of cute and funny. But the whole time I just sat there with my jaw agape going, what have they done to this beautiful, beautiful Australian film? They've just sort of turned it into a joke. Like the whole idea of remaking a film from one language into another language is such a weird concept. It doesn't, like occasionally, like I said before, look with Let the Right One In and Let Me In, it works. But in most cases, you go, well, why don't you just watch the original? Is there more about the Spanish culture in this film? Like, it doesn't make it specific no. to being a Spanish story? No, but the original didn't wasn't quintessentially Australian either. So it could have been, it could, it could easily um, be picked up and put into any location. I have a question for everyone. What other Australian films would you like to see get a Spanish remake? <laughs> None. I think, like, Ned Kelly, um, Priscilla, Queen of the <laughs> Desert. That would be sacrilege, Brent. That would be sacrilege. I don't believe in different language remakes. I think they're bullshit. Think about that list that Daniel rattled off before. I mean, there are very few uh, TV and films from Australia which have been successfully adapted 
overseas, whether it be the US or in a foreign mm. language country, it's hard to take that Australian quirkiness, sense of humor, uh, and make that work in another language or even in English, but for another culture, I think. We're remaking our own things now. Like we're doing a remake of Wake and Fright and Picnic at Hanging Rock. I mean, what the fuck? Why on earth are we <laughs> like, when there are new stories in our own country to explore, why the fuck are we going back and remaking our the greatest achievements of our industry? And there are old stories to explore, like, you know, more more um, First Nation stories that yeah. definitely need more exploring. What I find interesting about this remake is that The Little Death uh, also plays on the idea that Australians as a whole have a have a prudish quality to them, which is why they, when the kinks come out, it's um, sort of more shocking and secretive. But like I said before, the Spanish, they're open, they're European, they're passionate, they sunbathe mm, naked on the beach. They don't really mm. have a lot to hide. So the idea that these people are hiding fantasies and fetishes, they're pretty minor too, um, from their significant other just seemed out of place. And you just kind of sit there going, really? Why? Yeah. Anyway, you can find Kiki Love to Love in cinemas now, along with my full review at maketheswitch.com.au. Last but not least, from Saturday, you can catch the latest National Theatre Live presentation, Obsession, starring Jude Law. Daniel caught this adaptation of the classic film, so did the transition from screen to stage work. The latest film in the National Theatre Live season, Obsession, is acclaimed director Ivo Van Hover's adaptation of Lucchino Visconti's 1943 film. When wanderer Gino, played by Jude Law, walks into a bar in a small town, he begins a passionate affair with Hana, the wife of the owner, played by Harling Rain. As the affair escalates with violent consequences, Gino is forced to make a decision about his future, settle down or hit the road again. As a piece of filmed theatre, the recording was up to the usual high standards we've come to expect from the National Theatre Live. The production, however, left a lot to be desired. The characters were unlikable and whiny. The script was stripped back to the point of banality. And while the performances were strong and the images striking, they weren't enough to hold it all together. Obsession was overlong, overwrought and underrealized. I'm giving this one two stars. Oh, harsh. And to be honest, it's a bit weird to give a review of a theatre piece in a film context. Because realistically, there's not much to, like, they're well made, so it's kind of hard to go, well, I'm giving two stars to the production. Yeah, that's the thing. What are, you, what are, what are we reviewing in a film theatre? Mm. Theatre is, you know, well, I don't need to explain it to you, Daniel, because you're a director in real yes. life. Um not just a faceless voice on a podcast, but, um, you know, theatre is meant to be live and immediate and, you know, sometimes a little bit messy and film doesn't lend itself to that. It, film tends to be a lot more structured, thought out, I guess, like, perfected. Mm. I mean, there's a certain degree, there's a lot of craft that goes into these National Theatre Live screenings. I've always been impressed by how well they capture theatre. It's true that you can't ever properly capture the experience of watching a piece of live theatre on film. But I mean, the advantage of having the National Theatre Live is that we get to see amazing productions from great directors with great casts. There are a lot of hit and misses. Do you can you think of it more as an, an, of an archival yeah. thing? Yeah. And for the rest of the world to be able to experience it outside <clears throat> of the UK as well. Yeah, like being able to see, like mm. I know the next the next National Theatre Live screening is Who's Afraid Virginia Woolf for the Melda Staunton and Imogen Poots mm. and Luke Tread way like that's yeah. i want to see that and i'm excited to see that i know that for us to a certain extent the national theater live will film it well and they now know what they're doing in the early days it was a little stilted but yeah i think as much as it's always better to see the real thing for now it offers the audience an experience to see theater from around the world in a context that does it relatively good justice 
also it makes it a lot more accessible um cost yeah i mean theater is an expensive thing to go and see movies comparatively aren't quite yeah i mean you know obsession was just over an hour and a half but usually they're like a good three hours for anyone who's going to settle in to watch angels in america in september that's like seven hours of theater and a lot of the shows that the national theater tend to do are brand new works from really exciting writers and a lot of really exciting revisiting of classics like we're never going to see a production of Amadeus in Australia but you can if you go watch the National Theatre Live presentation so as much as Obsession was a disappointment and I'm a big fan of Eva Van Hover's work and I was very disappointed with this one um, I think there is a lot of benefit to what the National Theatre Live is doing um, my review for Obsession is available now at maketheswitch.com.au and it hits cinemas this Saturday now let's check out the upcoming films in our trailer wrap first up The Shape of Water this creature is intelligent, capable of language, of understanding emotions. Get him out. What are you talking about? No. We need to take it apart, learn how it works. I don't want an intricate, beautiful thing destroyed. We can do nothing. I'm sorry. Don't do this, Alasa. What is she saying? Don't do this. Oh, God, it's not even human. Well. Doesn't this just look super oh beautiful? God. I mean, I know it's getting stunning. Oh, it's I almost, so good. I almost stopped watching halfway through because I didn't want to see any more in case it ruined anything. Because, yeah, it's just... It's exactly as good as I hoped it would be. I really feel like we're only getting the tip of the iceberg from this trailer, mm. though. I think that what we're seeing here is just the initial setup. I think there's going to be much, much more to it. Than oh, yeah. Guillermo del Toro is such an amazing and twisted visionary, and there's going to be so many more like layers and little intricate elements to this film, and it's just going to be sensational. I really love the fact that it's... I mean, I know that the main character is mute, but she talks in sign language through the whole thing, and as you guys know, I'm I'm studying sign language and i just think it's fantastic like the whole way through it's not even an issue that's one element then you've got the uh, the time placement it looks like the 1950s you've got this mad scientist idea it's this combination of these fantastic concepts all coming together in this amazing looking and he's such a personal filmmaker even a film like crimson peak i which i friggin loved even though i know it wasn't particularly popular it was so his vision he's so pedantic about his vision and he's so perfectly places his vision anything that del toro does you have to pay attention to it because you may be getting another pan's labyrinth and he well like he really does have also a very clear sense of style you can often tell it's a guillermo del toro movie because you go oh that monster has that sort of look about it and you're just like oh yeah like the monsters in hellboy 2 or you know pan's labyrinth it's all very they're all Mm. so different but they all still somehow manage to be part of the same style is that the word he has an innate understanding of what a fairy tale is in the very classic traditional sense every genre that he works in he understands it and that often means that his work is quite divisive because for a general moving going audience they go to see crimson peak expecting to get a horror film and they get a gothic romance and a gothic romance is a very particular style of storytelling in the same way that even though i didn't like it that much pacific rim was a very particular style of narrative and he always understands that if this is a fairy tale along the same lines of pan's labyrinth or the devil's backbone it is every reason to be excited about what and i think just from sally hawkins little bits in the trailer i think it might look like it could be one of the best performances of the year 
She gives me tingles. Yeah. And Michael Shannon too. Like oh, that yeah. guy is phenomenal. It's just oh, and he Guillermo del Toro always inspires the most phenomenal performances from his actors, and these are two incredible ones, like at the top of their game already. So mm. it's just oh, I can't I can't even deal. Yeah. Can't wait. Well, that looks like it's got thumbs up all around. The Shape of Water hits Australian cinemas on Australia Day 2018. Next up, let's take a look at The Snowman. A woman vanished last night. We just found the body. And the head... ...is missing. calls himself the snowman killer. He's completely insane. Keep the front door open. I'm thinking that he's going after women that he disapproves of. The only thing we know for sure is that he's playing games with us. I have to be honest, when this one turned up on my news feed, I didn't really know what it was, but as soon as I started to watch it and realised the calibre of the cast, but more than anything, the calibre of the director. I mean, it's Thomas Alfredson who directed yes. Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy and Let the Right One In, and it's like, I'm there. I'm totally fucking Fantastic. there. And I, you know, I'm a massive David Fincher fan. I love a good serial killer film. Um, and we haven't had a really good one since the last time I can think of that a film looked this exciting in this genre was probably the girl with the dragon tattoo which was finch's that kind of pulpy textured oh so creepy or creepy and like it was great watching the trailer we haven't really talked about how the crafting of a lot of these trailers and this one in particular i was really taken by because it starts off and it looks like it could be one of those bad 90s thrillers and then as the trailer continues the images become more surreal and pedantic and fascinating so that by the end i was totally with this film i hope it's as twisted as all of alfredson's other films and as twisted as the trailer promises it to be can i just point out the terrible title i mean i know it works within the context of the film but for unsuspecting visitors to this trailer i was texting charlie <laughs> earlier this week about all the trailers we should watch and he's like yeah and the snowman i'm like i'm not watching some it sounds like a christmas film to jack frost and watching michael keaton be a fucking snowman again yeah. And then I watched this and I was cracked myself. And I'm like, oh, Michael Fassbender. Oh, it's so creepy. I feel like that happens oh. quite a bit, actually. There are, I, I'm, I can't think of the top of my head, but I know there's been other thrillers where that exact problem has happened. That everyone goes, oh, that title is not indicative of all of what the film is going to be. Snowman has a very... You know how, like, right now, that sort of Nordic noir, Scandi noir... It's is, so yeah. hip right now. It's so cool. Now it's hot right now. That Hansel. It's so um, Ikea. <laughs> Yeah, you know, build some furniture while you're watching someone try and figure out who's killing everyone. Okay, I guess that's the end of that. Hurdy gurdy gurdy. When in doubt, Swedish. Gonna chop your head off and put it on a snowman. Well, you don't have long until the snowman descends upon us. It's hitting Australian cinemas on the 19th of October. And finally, a tribute to the best, worst film of all time, it's The Disaster Artist. Ready? And action! What a line. What a line. I did not hit her. It's not true. It's bullshit. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. Okay. Action! What is line? I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. 
Take 67. You guys have no idea how excited for this film I am. I am actually like literally reading the book that this film is based on, The Disaster Artist, uh, at the moment. It's going to be directed by James Franco. It stars Dave Franco. It's got all of James Franco's collection of misfit toys like uh, Alison Brie and Seth Rogen. And I have unfortunately actually sat through a public screening of The Room before. It's awful. Covered in spoons and spit and just being yelled at and vile sexist things at for an hour and a half is not an ideal way to spend a Friday night. But this film inspires something in Mm. people. It's so bad, it's good. And it's created this phenomenal cult following behind it. And just even how how this movie got made, the people behind it, how it found its audience, it is an incredible story. How did he find $6 million for this? It was self-funded by this weirdo, Tommy Wiseau, who wrote, directed, starred in this movie. He's the guy that James Franco plays, who you see delivering that awful dialogue that he can't even remember that he himself I wrote. I did not hear. Oh, oh, hi, Mark. <laughs> oh, hi, Mark. You're tearing Can me I just apart, point, none of, Very few of us on this podcast have seen The Room, but we all know that line of dialogue. Know it. That's the beauty and the phenomenon that is the room. It's I. It looks, oh my be, god! I cannot believe it. And just that part is half the trailer. It's amazing. To be, it's to be so honest, good. I mean, most of the time, films about the making of films don't really work. It's kind of a banal thing to tell a story. Like Hitchcock, it didn't work. Um, Feud, it didn't really work. This is one though where I go, I reckon this. And the reviews from its early screenings in film festivals around the world have been really positive. So even without having seen The Room, I'm genuinely excited to see this because this story just sounds like it's going to be batshit fucking nuts. Yeah, because it's not just about the making of the film. It's about the weirdo behind the film. (laughs) Which is the most interesting part. And in James Franco's hands, I honest to God, I don't think this movie could have found better hands to be put in. I hope they make a movie about the weirdo behind it. The, the, the writer, the director, the star of um, Dance With Wolves, Kevin Costner, you know, like... <laughs> that is a movie what? I would see. How did he get... Who's going to play Kevin Costner? Probably, Probably Kevin Costner. Kevin Costner, Excuse obviously. Me. Kevin Costner yeah. is, on a, yeah. is on a career resurgence thanks to great films like Hidden Figures. So, like, let's let... He might. He might play himself. Isn't there a... Isn't, like, didn't you say you were sort of saying earlier, Jess, that it looks like there actually are a lot of famous people playing themselves in this film? Yes. Okay, so obviously this trailer that we've just watched, it's... Um, it's very vague, but if you go onto INDB, there are a lot of actors that are listed as playing, quote unquote, themselves. So I can't help but feel that this film is going to be the making of the room into splice, kind of like a half documentary, half remake kind of thing, ah. interspliced with actors, you know, talking about where they were when they first saw the film and how it changed things and how they feel it about it. It at least how invites good it is the idea that this might not be this might have a, an interesting structure and an interesting take on just on the way to tell the definitely, behind the definitely. scenes story. Yeah, absolutely. Well, The Disaster Artist is certainly the most fun-looking trailer this week, but there were so many others we didn't get to, including Alpha, Professor Marston and the Wonder Women, Proud Mary, a new Kingsman, the Golden Circle trailer, as well as the first look at Jigsaw, which is the latest of the Saw franchise. To check them all out, head to youtube.com forward slash make the switch AU. With the Marvel Cinematic Universe and the DC Extended Universe both in full swing, there's no better place for fans to be than Hall H at San Diego Comic-Con, the biggest gathering of cinema, television, comic and pop culture lovers alike.
This year, Marvel unveiled footage from the Avengers Infinity War. The cast of Black Panther got to watch the very first footage for their film for the first time in front of a highly anticipated audience and their reaction was priceless. And we got the sneakiest of peeks at Marvel's first female-led film, Captain Marvel, starring Oscar winner Brie Larson. It's going to be epic. For DC fans, the cast of Justice League were out en masse and ready to party, showing much love for their recused leader Zack Snyder and revealing the first full-length feature trailer. I don't recognize this world. We don't have to recognize them. Also announcing that Wonder Woman is officially getting a sequel. Comic-Con also saw Thor Ragnarok get another trailer and oh my god, does the Marvel Universe just keep getting better or is it just me? I thought you'd be glad to see me. I need to stop her here and now to prevent Ragnarok, the end of everything. So they're putting together a team. Like the old days. We got Thor Ragnarok and we also got the Defenders trailer. Marvel is doing everything right that DC is doing wrong. I said it, I'm a Marvel person. What are you going to do about it? It also feels really like this Comic-Con we've seen a return to the 80s. If that is just me, then let me know. But I think it's pretty much everyone. Like, look at Thor Ragnarok. Everything is this real 80s. Even look at Ready Player One. You know, there's this resurgence of the origins of these sort of nerd culture that is becoming the dominant force in what is current pop culture. As a nerd, I couldn't love it more. On the television front, the two events that excited me the most out of Comic-Con was the release of the new trailers for the second seasons of Stranger Things and Westworld. Stranger Things was the surprise television hit of last year through Netflix, and the creators of the series promised for something bigger and darker, continuing to play on the 80s themes uh, that they had set up in the original series. And it looks like it's going to fulfill those promises and tenfold. Whatever is happening is spreading from this place. I'm hoping it doesn't fall into the trap of fan baiting, but it looks like the scale of the series is opening up and it's still going to continue to deliver exciting, thrilling storytelling uh, in that kind of grungy 80s fantasy science fiction model. Uh, and Westworld, which was a blockbuster of a series last year when in its first season, uh, isn't due back until 2018. So the trailer for season two was a massive surprise. And that beautifully dark, twisted show looks like it's going to continue to push the boundaries of what's possible with television storytelling. Uh, if you haven't checked out those trailers, I highly recommend them and definitely check out the first seasons of both Stranger Things and Westworld if you haven't had a chance. You won't regret it. Of course, there was so much more that went down over the four-day event, which will slowly leak over the coming weeks. Until next year, nerds. Dunkirk has hit the top of the Australian box office, taking in over $6 million across the country on its opening weekend, and proving cinema is still going strong. But in a recent interview, director Christopher Nolan criticised the release model of streaming service Netflix, who in the past few years have stepped into the feature film arena with a number of high-profile feature film projects. Netflix has a bizarre aversion to supporting theatrical films, Nolan said. They have this mindless policy of everything having to be simultaneously streamed and released, which is obviously an untenable model for theatrical presentation. So they're not even getting in the game, and I think they're missing a huge opportunity. Netflix has already caused heated debate at Khan, where Boon Joon-ho's Okja was booed before it had even started. These films are skipping a theatrical release and going straight to the streaming service. 
Nolan's latest film, Dunkirk, is getting a significant release on 70mm, with the director a huge advocate for preserving the use of film over digital. The only platform I'm interested in talking about, he said, is theatrical exhibition. With the way we view films shifting dramatically and swiftly, does Nolan and the other like-minded filmmakers have a point, or are they working against an inevitable future for film distribution? So I think there's two issues that they're discussing here. One is the fact that uh, Nolan is still holding on to the idea of film, and that's an aesthetic choice. That's something different. The other issue he's discussing is the competition that he's facing against streaming platforms and whether or not it's legitimate that something like Netflix should be circumventing the entire theatrical uh, release. And that's really tough for Hollywood and a lot of other filmmakers because they have this rule where it has to be 90 days after theatrical release where it gets a home entertainment release and that's that's actually something in writing um, and for Netflix to be able to kind of not follow those rules and create its own uh, release platform uh, really throws a curveball at Hollywood and puts them at a disadvantage. Does it though? Get that piece of paper that says you have to wait 90 days and tear it the fuck up. The rules are cha- yeah. the, the rules are changing and we can have both streaming films and theatrically released films. I mean the the thing about what Netflix has done is I mean a, a film like Oakja could not have been made without the support of Netflix. Films like Beasts of No Nation could not have been made. Um there's a lot of filmmakers that are turning to any in the interview he too does talk about Amazon as well. Um, and he mentions the fact that Amazon does actually theatrically release their films before putting them on the streaming service. He says the big issue here is it's removing the possibility of theatrical presentation. And I have to admit, like I don't I haven't watched Oakja yet, and I'm really excited to see it. I didn't really want to watch it on my television, but hey, if that's the decision that they've made, that's fine. But of course, Christopher Nolan doesn't agree with the format for Netflix. He supports film. His new film just went out on 70 millimeter. Like it's it kind of like when I, when that story came up on my news feed, I just kind of read it, looked at the, the um the the title and just went, no shit. Also, let's re- remember what you told us about Christopher Nolan last week, which was that he doesn't have a mobile phone. He doesn't <laughs> yeah. have the, <laughs> seemingly have the internet. Out of touch like much. obviously, he doesn't get Netflix. And also, I'm, I've just done a little bit of research here on my phone while we've oh. been talking. Guess what? There are four Christopher Nolan movies on Netflix right now in Australia. <laughs> and I watched Interstellar on Netflix. I don't think that it's a Christopher Nolan has an aversion to the concept of Netflix. I think what he has an aversion to is the concept of Netflix creating their own material and having them go straight onto the streaming service without a theatrical presentation. Like it even impacts him. Like it doesn't even impact him. It's equivalent to when J.J. Abrams said to people, please don't watch The Force Awakens on your iPhone when it comes out on home entertainment. These filmmakers work very hard to create a film to be seen in a cinema, particularly someone like Nolan. And it's not easy to advocate something like 70 mil film because there are very few cinemas in the world that can actually show it. He doesn't want you to watch his films on Netflix. If he makes, that's why he said he won't work with them. The reason being, he doesn't want his film to be go on a streaming service first. He wants it to go on a big screen. Um, and I, I get, but I get. How dare you tell me? How dare you tell me how I have to experience your art? Tough titties, 
You know, like you can't yeah. tell me. Well, no, I don't. I don't necessarily agree with that. Like, but Brent, that's that's like saying, do you think that watching a film at home on a small screen is the same experience as seeing it in a cinema? And I would say there's no way that those two things are the same. You don't get the same impact anywhere near as much at home as you do in the cinema. I'm I'm I'm, I'm not doubting that. I'm just saying there's only so much control you can have once you've put. Your thing yeah, but I think what world. I think what he's saying he's not averse to the concept of there being a streaming service at all. What he's saying is because the thing is all of his films are not made for Netflix. The issue he has is the film the, uh, the films that are made by Netflix. And what he says is it means that the films are going directly to a streaming service and not being shown in a cinema. And going to the movies is you know it's an event like it's sacred like i always jokingly refer to going to the cinemas as like i'm going to church it's a it's a sacred Amen. space he's saying that he wouldn't want that for his films because he wants them to be seen on a big screen and i mean we always go with it with a with a big budget film like we've set, talked about this in relation to dunkirk what's the best way to see it what does christopher nolan want us to do to see his film he wants us to see it on imax on film so we go okay we'll go and see it on film if the director of of oakja wants us goes okay it's okay for you to watch on a streaming service you go well then it's okay for me to watch it on a streaming service it's his decision that that's where he wants his art to be seen Christopher Nolan has a lot more clout than most directors do um, he is able to say I want my film to be seen on film and so that means that we can see it on film in the same way that Tarantino would, did the same with Hateful Eight and Paul Thomas Anderson did with The Master he wants to make sure that, that what he intended the film to be seen as is the way that we are able to see it I would like to see Okja on the big screen because I like seeing films in that context what he's saying is he doesn't agree with the model. That's it. It's just him saying, I don't agree with it. The thing you have to face is that maybe the last decade, cinemas have faced a decline in patrons. There are less people going to the cinema than ever. And I don't think you can say that Netflix is not partially responsible for that, at least in the past few years. Oh, not at all. No, no of course not. Prices. It's a, it's a comparatively cheap way of accessing all this stuff and guess what christopher nolan the recession that is about to hit america is not going to have people running into cinemas to see your movies it's going to have people sitting at home watching netflix but is that a good thing that's going to kill cinemas people talk about the death of like the death of any art form all the time people say that theater is about to die when television came along everyone said that cinema was about to die is netflix going to kill cinemas no because at the end of the day, some things are better to watch on a giant screen. You don't want to go, like, if you're a Transformers fan, you want to go see it on a big screen with loud sound. Yes, maybe home entertainment will one day reach that level, but at this stage, it's not. So as much as, yes, Christopher Nolan will have to one day acknowledge the fact that Netflix is a major player within this industry at the moment, it's just one guy's opinion about the way that films are shown. It's secondary to the debate like film versus digital as far as I'm concerned. Okay, I have something to add to Mr. Nolan's argument. I, for one, would love to see less people in theatres because cinema etiquette has gone out the freaking window of late. With more Amen, sister. With Preach. more and more people choosing not to put their phones away during screenings, conversation levels are at an all-time high as well as drunkenness, snoring and poor personal hygiene, just to name a few. What has happened to the cinema-going society? Are we just too used to being in fr in the comfort of our own homes or are people genuinely becoming assholes? And what's worse, they don't seem to care. These people should just die. They should just oh, I have a laundry list of infractions at cinemas and it's not just public cinemas. I go to films, as we all do, with a lot of industry people and they're oh, getting Oh, they are the too. worst. 
here's what I hate most. I love going to the cinema, but at the end of a movie, I what when I used to sit there with my friends or partner or whatever and break down about what I loved and what I hated about a movie, the, the first five minutes post-screening are now filled with all the annoying fucking people that were sitting around us and what they did. I think the worst story I've heard of late is Brent. What happened when we went to the Fantasia screening? Like, that was... Oh, my God. It is literally the most disgusting thing that has ever happened to me. And as you probably know from listening to the podcast for the last two weeks, I have a lot of disgusting things happen to me in my life. (laughs) (laughs) Daniel and I were... Enjoying Fantasia. Well, as much as we could when a woman was talking to her daughter through the entire film. uh, The entire film. This was the same group of people as well, so they were obnoxious from the start. This man was also tapping his foot along to the music, and nothing drives me crazier than that, because I did orchestras while I was a child, and you're told not to tap your foot because it distracts everyone around you, so you just tap it inside your shoe. You like your big toe. Regardless, he was tapping his foot. I was fucked off by that. But then... At the end of Fantasia 2000, just before um, the Firebird, he lets out this almighty sneeze and it splattered me. I was splattered from head. And, like, I recoiled and moved forward. And he would have seen me go, ugh, like, just try and get away from it. And even Daniels looked over and was like, oh, my God, what just happened to you then? It was foul. Yeah, it was... I, I had I had one when I went to see Dunkirk. Like, you know, first night, packed audience, sitting there, everyone's excited. The projectionist actually came out and gave a speech beforehand about the importance of 70 mil and how exciting it was. Everyone was kind of riled up. And this girl was sitting in front of me and she still had her phone out. And I was like, and I hate that. Phones out in cinemas. I'm like, no, turn the fucking thing off. Like, turn we it can off. You can see deal you. for you two hours. Right screen it. in front of your face in a dark cinema. We can what she you. was doing, because I was looking, and I hate when this happens because those first few minutes are sinking in with the film. And if you don't get that, it can actually become quite detrimental to your ability to actually be able to watch the film. So I'm trying to sink into watching this film, and she's got her phone out, and I realize she's on Snapchat. And then I realized what she was waiting for was the title. So when the title came <sighs> up, she took a photo of the title and sent it to all her friends. But first of all, she had to write a, a comment about how excited I was for seeing Dunkirk. Oh my God, Harry Styles. And then she had to send it to all the people on her on her Snapchat. If I'd had the guts, I was ready to pick up her phone and throw it at the front of the cinema and be like, that's incredibly disrespectful to Snap everybody sitting pitch. around you. Why are you, wa- stop, get off your fucking phone and watch the film. You just paid a lot of money to watch this film. A lot of people I follow on Instagram seemingly just like will put on their Instagram stories just random parts of movies that they're watching in the cinema. And I'm like, I don't want to see the end of Wonder Woman. Don't tell me what's happening. (laughs) The amount of people I'm seeing actually taking photos during a movie is incredible. I've also noticed the same thing happening in the, in the theater. Not quite so bad, but it's pretty bad. Like I've I've had shows where people have sat on their phones, playing on their phones with actors like a meter away from them. As mm. it time goes on, it like it's just getting progressively worse. I mean, do you have one, Charlie? Definitely. Uh, a couple of months ago, I was seeing a cure for wellness. Um and one of the things I love as much as going to see a a film in the cinema is sitting there and watching trailers as well I love uh, checking out what's coming up and all through the trailers and all through the uh, pre-film entertainment uh, there was these group of people young teenagers behind me who were sitting there commenting talking complaining 
And when the film Young started... Young people. That, <laughs> oh, kids these days. Youth. And when the film started, it did not stop. Ugh. They did not stop for a second. And they were talking at full volume. Not only that, 10 minutes into the film, they all got up and walked out. Made no sense to me whatsoever. I mean, I was very happy because I had peace and quiet, but why would you pay that much money to sit there for 10 minutes to complain? Maybe they just thought that they'd gone into the cinema for Fast and the Furious 8. I I actually have to admit, though, if they decided they didn't like the film and left, I'm impressed. When I went to see Clyde Atlas, which goes for three hours, the group in front of me, and I was... You all know what I think of Cloud Atlas. I was fucking loving it. Um, they sat and talked loudly and obnoxiously because they clearly were not enjoying the film. And I just thought, why can't you just leave the film? In Australia, I just, I keep thinking it's because we just don't have a concept of what culture is in Australia. We don't understand the the fact that someone has made this thing, that the act of sitting and watching this work is an engagement with that work. And what it expects of us is that we will sit there and engage with it. If Christopher Nolan's complaint about Netflix is, it has any validity. It's actually in the fact that we're now so used to watching things in our home that we think we can talk through it or we think that we can play on our phones through it to the point where, yes, this is really bad in cinema, but the same thing I keep seeing happening in the theater. People that think they can sit and talk whilst something is happening in front of them. It's incredibly disrespectful to the work itself, the people who created the work, and to the people sitting around you. I mean, I don't mind a little whispered, like, funny comment every now and then. That that That's fine by me, just a little, like, done. Yeah. You know, and then a little giggle. But don't have a conversation. No, can I, I think, can I just say my my partner is a sh- I avoid confrontation, but my partner is a shusher, and he also tells people to put Good away their phones. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Hi, baby. And he also tells people to put away their phones. But the looks that people give him oh. when they tell when he tells them to please like be he's quiet the bad or put guy. away, it's yes, so ridiculous. It's like, How dare you tell me what to do? Or I'm not doing anything wrong? Or you're the fucking asshole? And I'm like, are you kidding me? I want to kick everyone in the Dick. Yeah, I, so we, I paid a lot of money to see I this. went to a screening yes. of um, Michael Haneke's The White Ribbon at the Aster, at the Aster of all places. And the film starts in silence. The titles happen in complete silence. And if you're going to go to the Aster to see The White Ribbon, you're probably someone who knows what the fuck it is and probably not just a casual film goer going, I'll just go watch this because it looks like it's a bit of fun. It's not. Like, it's it's dense and difficult. And this woman was continuously talking through the opening titles. And it's silent for a reason, for like, to, as it prepares you for the film. And a woman sitting next to her turned and went, oh, I'm sorry, the film started. Would you mind being quiet? And this woman very loudly went, no, it hasn't. And she was like, no, the titles have started. The film's actually started. She's like, oh, but it's silent. It's just the titles. Like, yes, but it's still part of the film. Can not you please stop talking? Point. And so for the rest of the title, she kept going, nothing's happening. Oh, still nothing's happening. It's very quiet. Oh. And then when the film started, I was like, oh, oh, the film started now. Oh, something's finally happening. Oh. I guess if there's one thing we want to impart to our listeners, um, it's that we hope that you don't have bad cinema etiquette, because if you do, we are very disappointed in you. But please pass to everyone you know this idea <laughs> that sitting in the cinema is a wonderful, sacred, beautiful thing, and you should just keep your phone off, your mouth shut, and just watch the goddamn yep. screen. Mm. Amen. Amen. We have a great giveaway for you this week. We're giving away five copies of Ghost in the Shell. Based on the hit Japanese manga, Scarlett Johansson stars as a cyber-enhanced soldier tasked with stopping the world's most dangerous criminals. For your chance to win this great prize, head to maketheswitch.com.au forward slash comps now. Before we go, we'd like to offer some cinematic inspiration with each of us suggesting one film you should see and why in 15 seconds or less. 
For me, this week, it would have to be... Requiem for a Dream. Oh, bloody hell. Ooh, dark. I, I have not seen this film in a very long time for a very good reason. It will fuck you up. <laughs> it is one of the most messed up films you will ever see, and it will give you nightmares. Don't let that deter you, because it is a spectacular film, and guaranteed you will never do drugs. It's practically a masterpiece. It is a masterpiece. I watched it with my mum. Imagine sitting and watching that double-ended dildo scene with your mum. <laughs> spoilers, Brent, spoilers. Confession, I've never seen it. Oh, it's amazing. It's remarkable, but it is tough. It is yeah. very, That's why I haven't very seen it. tough. Yeah. Okay, Jess, what's your film this week? Okay, I have to go with the 2016 Oscar-nominated documentary Life Animated. Oh, It is one yes. of the most beautiful, life-affirming films you have ever seen in your life, and especially for all Disney lovers. I sobbed so much. Oh, so right? Much. I walked out of the cinema. I went to take my sister at the Sydney Film Festival last year, and she just looked at me and she said, I feel like I can fly. And it is that beautiful and that heartwarming i cannot stress it enough so life animated great choice daniel i'm going to go with another slightly obscure film which i think may end up being my thing with this section um i have been reading a book about terence malick of late and so i thought i would recommend for those who haven't seen it his 1973 debut film badlands which stars sissy spacek and martin sheen uh it's uh, set in the 1950s about a couple who go on a killing rampage across uh, the United States. It sounds like a, lo- a lot like uh, Bonnie and Clyde, but it's a far more meditative, uh, contemplative film, and it's incredibly beautiful and ve- weirdly very funny. Um, it it's before Malik started to do his much more experimental work. Um, so yeah, I highly recommend Badlands. It's a beautiful little masterpiece. Finally, Brent. Well, after the response I got last week... (laughs) How can you you top League of Extraordinary Gentlemen? I mean, honestly. Well, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen 2, even more gentlemen. (laughs) No, that doesn't exist. (laughs) That film doesn't exist. Um, Why not? Yeah, I know. I think there's probably a very good reason. I think there's a long list of reasons. People's careers (laughs) ended because of that film. (laughs) Who's film? What? John Curry will refuse to come out of retirement because of it and the director never directed again. <laughs> Amazing. I fucking loved it. Anyway. anyway. Um, the film that I would recommend, and because I've been inspired by The Room and that scene that we all managed to always say. Oh, hi, Mark. Uh, I would... Sorry. Oh, hi, Mark. Um, what I would recommend you go and see is, and if you haven't seen it, uh, Rebel Without a Cause. It's one of my favourite oh. films of all time. And James Dean is perfection in it. And that scene where he does say you're tearing me apart perfectly captures what it is like to have sort of a bit of teen angst and not quite know where you are in the world. Well, embarrassingly, I've never seen it. I've always... Me neither. I've got it. Daniel. I've got a copy no. of it. I just I need to sit and watch it. I've always heard such wonderful oh, things about it. I've just it's bought it. So you guys need to it. It will change your life. All right, some great suggestions there. And you can find the links to all the articles we've talked about on this week's podcast at maketheswitch.com.au. Please subscribe to Switchcast on iTunes or your favourite podcast platform. And don't forget to rate us. And stay in touch on Twitter. I'm at Charlie underscore David. Jess. I'm Miss Jess underscore Switch. Daniel. At Daniel Lemon. And Brent. At Brent C. Davidson. And that is the letter and not the body of water. Wonderful. Like it, follow it. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at 
make the Switch AU to stay up to date with all the latest reviews, news, trailers, and giveaways. And you can find all the notes and links to everything we've discussed on this week's podcast, as well as other episodes, by visiting switchcast.com.au. On next week's show, I'll have my verdict on the kick-ass Atomic Blonde. Plus, I'll review The Big Sick, the culture-clashing comedy in the pursuit of love and acceptance. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week.